What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. All right, guys, what is happening in the mortgage market? What is happening to rates? Where are they going to go in 2024? How should you prepare for the rate changes that's going to come? And can you prepare for rate changes and things like that? In this episode, I'm going to be giving you my take on all of those questions. And I'm going to be using a combination of best guess and data from various market sentiment uh, documents and things like that that I've been picking up. So guys, what's up? Welcome back to another episode. Mortgage rates uh, are a huge number of people are impacted by rising rates. Uh, and it, that is in more ways than one. How, you gotta, we got to ask ourselves, like, how are rates set in the first place? I don't know whether you're all fully aware of how rates are established. But depending on where you're listening in from, it, the central bank of whatever country you're in gen generally tends to set the rates. And in this case, I'm based in Ireland, so we're part of the euro, and it is naturally the European Central Bank, the ECB, that sets our rates. But if you're listening in from the UK, it's the Bank of England. And if you're listening in from the US, it would be the uh, Federal Reserve, and so on and so on. Now, central banks have a very important role in all economies. In any particular economy, the central bank pretty much controls what's going to happen. And if you take both the ECB and the Bank of England as an example, they have both got mandates um, from their, you know, set in stone. This is their mandate. And their mandate is to monitor their respective economies and to make the necessary adjustments to ensure that they are smooth and that they are, you know, stable. And there's a couple of specific policies that they have or the mandates that they have. Number one is monetary policy. And so by adjusting interest rates, and this is obviously where the mortgage rates are set from, but by adjusting interest rates, the central banks can achieve price stability and it can support economic growth. Now, those two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Economic growth is usually the driver, but economic growth with price stability is what they want. And what we had is after 2020, the pandemic came along and all that, there was a flood of money pushed into the economy. And sure enough, what did that do? It overheated the market and we started to see inflation. And when inflation creeps in, you no longer have price stability. And so without that price stability, what do they have to do? They have to crank up interest rates to try to drive uh, stability back down to a level that they are comfortable with. And this naturally hits economic growth. And it does not support economic growth, more so it actually kind of pulls the rug from economic growth. But in order to get your inflation under control, that is the way that you do that. Now, another thing that the central banks do is they look for the financial system itself, they're looking to make sure that 
financial stability is maintained by good policies uh, from lending institutions, banks, things like that. They want to make sure that they are looking over the shoulder of all of these banks. So what happened in 2008 doesn't happen again. In 2008, you had everybody out there basically um, borrowing money left, right and centre from banks that were only delighted. And the reason the banks were so interested in it is because they were charging huge fees and they were trying to grab as much market share as possible. So all of the kind of prudent lending rules that would normally apply went out the window and it was kind of a free-for-all. And it was driven by the people in the board of directors. The way it works with these board of directors is that they, they are incentivized financially to grow the business, to grow the share price of the bank or whatever. And so these guys, the way to do that was to throw caution out the window and to go drive the business as fast as possible. And they ended up collecting millions, sometimes hundreds of millions in bonuses and stuff like that. Now, the central bank's job is to look at that, to keep an eye on it and to make sure that's not happening and that prudent you know, rules are being applied. And they're doing that now, of course, but back in 2007, 2006, they were asleep at the wheel. Nobody was monitoring the banks. They were all kind of a little bit cozy. They all went to the same universities and stuff. And so naturally enough, they're out playing golf, chatting with one another. Uh, you're, you're being very prudent, are you? Yeah, we are. Okay, that's grand, you're, you're fine. Nowadays, it's nothing like that. These guys are very, very heavy and they come in and they say, right, we're gonna fine you millions because you did something wrong. The other thing that central banks do is they act as bankers to the government themselves. And what they do is they manage the national debt and the foreign reserves. So anytime a, business, uh, a, a government wants to fund maybe something in the health sector or whatever, normally they'll go to the central bank, they'll say we need 500 million or 10 billion or whatever it is. And the central bank will go and they will issue bonds and stuff and that's how they'll make the money. And they'll give it to the government then. The other thing they do is currency issuance. And so the Bank of England obviously issues banknotes in England. The ECB issues banknotes in the Eurozone, and that would be the Euro. The, the last final thing that they all do that they kind of have in common is economic research and statistics. Obviously, in order to set policy and in order to kind of know what rates to put up or down or whatever it is, you need data to be coming in constantly so that you're aware of what is happening in the economy. Various cycles, all that kind of stuff, you need to be keeping an eye on that. And so that is what the job of the central bank is as well. It's to keep an eye on all of that and make sure that you're paying attention so that there's nothing catching you by surprise. When inflation suddenly reared its ugly head, um, some of the banks did not respond very quickly. And it's because they knew that there was inflation there, but they thought it was a blip. And there was that term that uh, the Fed chairman in the US said, and he said it was this was transitory, that inflation was just going to be a little bit for a little while, and that was going to be the end of it. It turned out to be, you know, stuck with us. And so that's why all of a sudden you had a massive increase in rates. Now, something to note in terms of the differential between the Bank of England and the ECB is that the Bank of England focuses on the UK economy, whilst the ECB has to focus on the economy of the entire EU, which is obviously made up of 27 different nations. And that makes it much, much larger and much, much more complex to try to manage. 
And so you're going to have a situation like multiple nations and economies, they don't always uh, perform in the same way. So whilst you have maybe France doing one thing, Germany doing another thing, Ireland is possibly doing something completely different. And so we might have an economic policy that is done in a way to protect or improve Germany or France, but it, it does nothing for us. Or it could be the other way around, that it actually is making our economy drive like crazy, uh, when if we were in control of our own uh, economy, we might actually like take our foot off the gas. So that is one of the things that we, I guess we've lost by joining the EU, but in return for, from joining the EU, we have the stability of 27 nations all working together. And so that is, you know, you'd have to kind of, uh, that's not that's not for this podcast. I'm not going to get into that right now. But sure enough, if you want to stimulate the economy, there can be unintended consequences with other economies. And, uh, and so Ireland has in the past gone through its Celtic Tiger boom, while, you know, larger economies like France and Germany and Italy and stuff were, were just kind of performing normally. Anyway, with that little lesson on central banks, uh, behind us now, uh, and I, I thought that was necessary just to kind of set the context. You know, what has pushed up interest rates uh, across the world has been the post-pandemic inflation that started to soar. And for the last two to three decades, inflation was much more of an economic concept than it was uh, in the last two to three years. Like in the past, you would have heard about inflation and you would kind of said, yeah, you know, I know what it is, you know, on paper. I know the dictionary meaning of inflation, but you never really experienced it like we've been experiencing it in the last year or two here. Now, obviously, some countries have experienced massive, like hyperinflation, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. But we have only really in the last two to three years felt the full effect of inflation in a more tangible way. Prices going up, fuel going up, electricity food. Um, and it's very difficult to manage this when wages remain the same. And in the past, economies were not so quick to respond. And you end up getting this, what they refer to as a wage price spiral. And that is when unions and labor forces and stuff start to say, right, we can't afford any of this. And so we demand increases in wages. And if we don't get those increases, we're going to go on strike. And so you had that. And what it did was pushes up salaries, but then what does salary pushing up do? It actually adds fuel to inflation, and it means more people can purchase more things, and so it pushes up the demand there, and so you end up with this vicious cycle, and that's what they mean by wage price spiral. The wages go up, then the prices go up, and it's a spiral, and it just keeps on happening. Now, in the year years, kind of the early 2000s, Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe under Robert Mugabe, and he was seen as something of a hero back in the 1990s. You know, uh, this guy that was coming in to kind of like rescue uh, Zimbabwe. And unfortunately, they didn't pay attention to these economic kind of rules and they lost the battle and they ended up with hyperinflation. Now, when, when I would give you these numbers, they're just going to blow your mind. Hyperinflation in Zimbabwe peaked in November 2008, and that was 79 billion percent a month. That was the rate of inflation. And what it meant was that 
You go out in the morning and a loaf of bread costs $100. When you come home that evening, it's $200. That was the rate at which prices were increasing. Now, post-war Germany in the 1920s, they had hyperinflation as well. I think it was called the Weimar Republic at the time. And prices were doubling every three to four days. Hungary in the 1940s, prices would double every 15 hours. That's how bad it was. So needless to say, this brings an end to an economy. And it's not just the economy is, is shot. You also, like the currency is shot. And usually you have civil and political upheaval going on at the same time. People lose everything. And with that, they lose hope. And so they take to the streets and they start rioting and all that kind of stuff. And that is what we, you know, we've seen that happening in Lebanon after that big explosion in Beirut destroyed everything and already the economy there was on its knees. Turkey has been in, experiencing very, very high inflation for the last year or two. So that's not, it's got to be pretty bad for them as well. Now, what we want to do is we want to avoid the, you know, nobody wants to have to counter inflation because it's really bad. What you want is to maintain inflation at a nice stable level. And I think the Bank of England, their mandate is 2%. I think the ECB is something around the same. But obviously, if you can maintain that, um, that nice stability, then you don't have to have the foul-tasting medicine of interest rate hikes that we've experienced. Now, obviously, governments and central banks, nobody wants to do the unpopular thing of raising interest rates, but you cannot do anything about it. If inflation starts to lose control, you have to react very quickly to get that under control. And so that is why we're in this situation. There's an awful, I see, I read these conspiracy theories in, you know, comments on YouTube videos and, and uh, TikTok videos and stuff. And it's people under the impression that the government is intentionally increasing interest rates to kind of like drive people out of their homes so that they can take them back and stuff. Like, it's kind of Lula kind of talk, that kind of thing. No government wants to be unpopular. They want to be popular with the people. And so increasing interest rates is something that most governments will actually resist, which is why central banks tend to be independent of the political establishment. It's because they don't want to be told by the government, here's where we want you to put rates. Because naturally, in the run-up to an election, everybody would be saying, get the rates down as low so that we're nice and popular. What really has to be done is they have to be completely separated so that there is no influence from one on the other. And what's happened in Turkey, the reason that it's gone uh, to such high levels. I think they're at like 40 or 60% uh, inflation in, in there at the moment. And it's because Erdogan wanted to be popular in the run-up to his election. And so he started fiddling with the interest rates and he pushed interest rates down when he should have put them up. Nobody wants to taste that foul tasting medicine that is interest rate increases, but that is the only way you can combat inflation, which is worse. If you end up in like the Zimbabwe situation or those other uh, economies that I mentioned, you just lose the country effectively in one go. So let's move on to the next topic, uh, not topic, but the next part of this whole thing. And that is like, what is the impact of these rising and falling interest rates? What are they gonna do to property prices? What are they gonna do to property investors? What are they gonna go to and do to banks and homeowners and all that kind of stuff? There's multiple issues caused by interest rate 
increases and decreases and things like that. And obviously, when you're looking at increases in rates, uh, the most obvious and, you know, uh, the bit that impacts everybody is the cost of borrowing goes up. Now, two years ago, the ECB rate was 0%. In fact, it was negative. I think it was 0.25 negative. And what that meant was that if you put money in the bank, far from earning interest, you actually had to pay interest to the bank for the delight of putting your money with them. And I actually had to pay money to my bank in interest payments. It was very frustrating because you're kind of thinking, I can't believe it's costing me money to put money in the bank. But that was what we were at. We were at negative interest rates. That's how low they had gotten. And sure enough, that is one way to stimulate the economy. And you had economies that were kind of stalling, places like Germany and France. And in order to kind of get them going again, the way to counter this is to actually reduce rates down to the point where it costs you money to keep money in the bank. And therefore, the obvious thing to do is go out and spend it and invest it. And that is what happened. Now, banks borrow at close to this rate, like the rate that the, that the central banks set. The banks get very, very close to that exact rate. And they obviously have to add their own margin. They need to make some money on it. But they will be borrowing at, we'll say, 0%. And they'll be lending it out to us at maybe 2% or something like that. So they'll add a little bit of a margin on top so that they can pay their costs and make a profit on it. But when you had rates at zero, the banks were probably charging, you know, 2.5% interest on bank loans and things like that. Very low. Feels like it's almost free money when it's at that rate. Today, rates have gone up to 5% over the space of 10 in interest rate increases. They went from 0 to 5%. And when you add your margin onto that, you're looking at borrowing costs for the average mortgage owner now, probably 75 to 8%, something like that. And at this level, what's interesting to know, interesting, uh, you know, if you look at yields and work out the calculation and stuff, if you're paying, uh, we'll say, 8% or 7.5% interest. Every 15 years, you will have paid the same amount of money as you borrowed in the first place. That's how much you will have paid in interest over that period. So you borrow 100,000, 15 years later, you will have you will still owe 100,000, but you will have paid 100,000 in interest. That's what 7 to 8% is versus 2%, it would take you 50 years for that same thing to happen. So it's very interesting, you know, rates do have a definite impact in terms of pushing economic demand down and also pushing prices of properties up or down depending on the direction that the rates. Now, if somebody has a variable or a floating rate, they will obviously uh, see the increase, the rate increase over time. If you've fixed your rate, it's obviously great when, you know, when, when rates are increasing, if your rate is you know, if you see that the ECB is increasing every single month or every single quarter and it's going up and up and up and you're fixed for three years, it feels great because you fixed in at 2% or 3%, whatever it is, and you're not having to pay this 5% that everyone else is screaming and, and shouting about. You're at 3%. But the problem is the only country that I know where they do really long-term fixing is at the U.S., uh, most people will only be able to fix for two to three to four years, whatever it is. And that's the problem is, is that at the end of that two to three year period, you'll be going from your 3% that you're delighted with, and it'll suddenly reset to this new level, and it'll jump up to five, six, whatever percent, 7%. And now 
if you decide to fix, you are going to be locking in for a couple of years at that 7% rate, which is obviously very unattractive. So you're probably going to choose to stay variable while rates are high. And the problem with that is you don't have the predictability anymore. You don't know what your rates are going to be. Like nobody has a crystal ball. Maybe rates will continue to go up. Maybe they'll start to fall. This is why you do need to pay attention to market commentary and you have to look at all this stuff to try to have an idea what way the rates are going to go. What is the swing likely to be? Now, after um, looking at a lot of things, I've figured that uh, I'm actually going to, in this podcast, I will talk to you about the consensus at the moment of where prices are going to be by the end of 24 and by the end of 25. Before I get there, the other thing that's you know, has to be talked about is the impact on market prices of property. House values are inversely correlated to interest rates, which means that when rates are low, usually house prices are higher. And when interest rates increase, usually that drives house prices down. Now, obviously, here in Ireland and in the UK, there's a bit of a housing crisis at the moment. And because of that, uh, it doesn't work exactly the same way. The demand outstrips supply by a good margin. Therefore, people are still willing to pay for pri- you know, property. But in a market with a lot of supply, you would actually see demand fall off when interest rates go up. And so naturally enough, that pushes prices down. Uh, and the reason it does this is because fewer people can qualify for the loans. And where it's really interesting, I saw this... Um, I saw something recently and they were talking about the median price of property in the US or something. And they were saying in 2021, a person on the median salary in California or something, they could afford a 700,000 mortgage. Today, two years later, that very same person on the exact same salary that they've been on for two years can now only afford 400,000 mortgage. And so the 700,000 spending power you had in 2021 is now 400,000 in 2023. So you can imagine that does impact on the market because you had 700,000 to spend before, now you only have 400,000. So that is naturally going to push down prices and mentally it's going to mean that you feel that you don't have the same amount of spending power and so you're going to set your sights lower. And that does impact people's mindset as well because they thought they were moving into the bigger house, now they can't and all that. So where are rates going to go in 2024 and 2025? Um, The good news is, uh, there's some good news out there and there's some bad news. The good news is that inflation is falling and it's falling quite quickly. The central statistics office here in Ireland says that the inflation rate is now at 2.3%, which is great because it was up at 9% at one stage. So this is obviously welcome news and it does mean that you know, if all things are equal, we're going to start seeing rates falling. And sure enough, the Fed in the US has already indicated that it will start to bring rates down in the near future. And when that happened, naturally enough, the stock market all started to explode and everyone was delighted. The thing is, is there was warnings coming out, though, from the Department of Finance here in Ireland. And that is that Yes, rates might be falling, starting to fall, but it doesn't happen overnight. It usually takes, you know, maybe two years for us to get back. Like it's taken two years to go from zero to five. It could take another two years for us to get back to that level. 
Or we may not even get to that level. We might go from 5% down to 2.5%, and it might take two years to achieve that. And so in the interim, while we're waiting for those rates to fall, there's going to be people that are on those fixed rates that are set in 2021 that were much lower. Those people are going to, uh, their, their rate is going to reset, and it's going to reset to this higher level. And so that is going to be negative for the market. And that impact is still yet to be felt because an awful lot of people are still on those fixed rates. And so when they suddenly go from paying two and a half, three percent to having to pay six or seven percent, that's when you're going to see affordability becoming a major issue. And it's going to suddenly mean that maybe people are going to have to put their house on the property, uh, on the market or whatever it is. And this is one of the problems. Um, there is going to be some pain, I think. Now, already people are feeling pain, but I think a greater number of people will start to feel that. Um, now, the other thing is the ECB, I, the, the, I mentioned the Fed in the US said that they're going to start uh, dropping rates soon. And naturally, the stock market loves that news, so it went berserk. But the ECB has actually been playing down that prospect because they're concerned that if they signal that kind of thing if they say yes rates are going to start falling what it'll do is it'll create this kind of spending thing again which would actually potentially push inflation back up again and so they're very nervous about signaling too early and causing the market to start thinking that it's time to start spending again so you might find that the ecb keeps us guessing for another while and they, they just want to keep the pressure on inflation, which is important given what I've mentioned already. Now, what is the consensus from the market? Where will rates be in, say, six months, 18 months, uh, you know, 24 months? There is no clear consensus. I've got to say that first. But I'm going to go through a number of the uh, rates that, uh, and, and the predictions that are out there at the moment. And I found a really, really useful chart on Bloomberg which what I'm going to do is, if you're watching on the YouTube video, you're going to see it on screen. But if you're following me on social media, if, you're, if you go into my LinkedIn profile, I'm going to post this uh, image on my LinkedIn and I'll write a bit of an article about it. But it's interesting. Currently today, we're at 5%. What they're predicting in the next six months, and what they've done here with this chart is it's, it's quite kind of a difficult chart to read. But when you're looking at it, it says it gives you the percentage of people that are predicting a certain rate and then it compares them to one another. So it says that in six months, which would be say next June 2024, I would say about four in 10, so 40% of people they asked reckon that interest rates will have fallen from five down to four. Six in 10, which is the greatest amount of them all, that's about 60%. They reckon that the rates are going to be 3.75 in about six months time. So that is good news. There's about, we'll say, a small percentage that think that it might even be lower at 3.5. But the consensus, the best, you know, the, the largest group out of them all that were asked, about 60% thought about 3.75 within six months. So that's good news. That's a 1.25% drop in the next uh, six months. 12 months. This is where there's massive divergence. And this is the interesting thing about when you're talking about consistent or when you're talking about uh, consensus market consensus you have to be very careful that you know exactly what the market thinks so in 12 months 
what is the rate what are the rates going to be and this is where there's a massive divergence and you know in the last example we talked about six months time where do we think and i was able to tell you that you know six out of ten people believed that it was going to be 3.5 or 3.75 in the case of the next 12 months by december of 2024 there's about one in ten think it's going to be at 3.75 i would say around two in ten think it's going to be 3.5 and around 50% think it's going to be 3.25. But another 1 in 10 think it's going to fall as far as 3. And another 1 in 10 think that it's going to fall as low as 2.75. So the winner there is 3.25. But that is, that's a year from now. And it's, you know, there's a quite a range between 3.75 at the top and 2.75. So there's a full 1% range there. But 3.25 is obviously better than 5. So you're looking at a 1.75 fall is the consensus for 12 months from now. Now, if we look at 18 months from now, so June of 2025, and this is again where there's quite a lot of divergence. 1 in 10 reckon we'll be at 3.25. 20%, 2 in 10 think we're going to be at 3%. And then 5 out of 10, so about 50% of those asked thought it was going to be at about 2.75%. Um, then another 10% think it may be two and a half and another 10% think that it could drop as low as 2.25. So you're looking at again about a 1% range there between the, you know, the different opinions, but the w winner is 2.75. And then 24 months away, so December 2025. And if you're locking in rates today, there's a chance that you'll be coming out of the lock-in uh, lock by the end of 2025. And so where will we be? Well, 1 in 10 think it's going to be 3%. 2 in 10 think it's going to be 2.75. And 3 in 10 think it's going to be 2.5. 2 in 10 think it might be 2.25. And 2 out of 10 think it might be 2. And then very, very small, like a sliver of people think it could be as low as 1.75. Now, you can see how the further away we get, the consensus becomes more difficult. And so that is because people don't have, you know, the crystal ball is always easier to predict when it's a little bit closer. So six months from now, you had 60% believing something. 12 months from now, it, that drops to five. 18 months from now, it drops to five. And then 24 months from now, it drops to 3% or 3 out of 10 people. So to round up that, uh, I, it's probably, maybe I've confused you all, but I'll give you a quick rundown. What it means is that six months from now, the, the consensus is that rates are going to fall from 5 to 3.75. 12 months from now, they reckon that it'll be 3.25. 18 months from now, they reckon it'll be 2.75. And 24 months from now the largest group but there wasn't a great deal of consensus here but the largest group reckoned 2.5 percent so that is basically rates falling by about half of what they are over a period of two years and so i guess the good news is that the direction is generally speaking downward the question is can you survive until then and what a lot of i'm hearing it is certainly in the office market it's the it's the talk of uh, everybody at the moment is this saying that we want to survive to 25. And that is 
what we're all trying to do. We really want to just get to the point is if you batten down the hatches for the next year and a half, two years, you, if you get as far as the end of 25, rates will be at half what they are now. And we, if we've survived that long, you'll actually be there. You'll be able to take advantage of those low rates and things will start to kind of boom again, hopefully. So I have a question for you. What do you think? Like, do you think um, rates are going to continue going up? You think they're going to continue going down? Do you think inflation is under control now or are we still waiting for the... Um, uh, the oil prices to push things up and perhaps some sort of a blip because of geopolitical forces. Who knows? Guys, it is December. It is late December. I'm wearing a Christmas hat. If you're watching the video, you will see me. I want to wish you all a great, happy Christmas. I'm going to be doing some, uh, some great stuff in 2024. Between now and then, um, I've actually got done a load of interviews in the last while. So I think you're going to enjoy the interviews. If any of you have any questions, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me on social media. I'll be happy to do it. I'm going to do a planning workshop for my uh, my various mastermind clients. Anyone who's interested in taking advantage of the falling interest rates over the next while, and if you want to know how other people are surviving this uh, this difficult period at the moment, do think about joining the mastermind. Uh, or even better, join the accelerator and learn how to do all of this kind of stuff for yourselves. Guys, hope you've enjoyed this one. Hope you found it useful and I will see you in the next one. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the Join My Tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.